It's considered one of Texas's most infamous crimes, leading to the largest manhunt the state had ever seen. Before it was all said and done, Santa had robbed a bank, killed three officers of the law, kidnapped two girls and a 21-year-old, stolen cars, oranges, and a winter coat. And then he was caught, empty-handed. Even if Santa had gotten away, he had lost his sack of loot. This may be why it's better to stay off of the naughty list. Welcome. My name is Elizabeth Bougeret, and I'm that person that, when studying the many facets of history, likes to peek behind the curtain, investigate the hidden passages, drop into the rabbit hole, or dare to walk in the shadows, because we all know that's where the good stories can be found. Take a listen, then, to discover what dark or peculiar pieces of American history can be found this week from my bag of bones. Extra, extra, read all about it. On May 5th, the Fort Worth Star-Telegram in the small county of Coleman, Texas, a teeny tiny corner article shouted as loud as a teeny piece could shout, Youth, given 18 years for robbery at Valera. This tasty little piece of gossip was about two brothers, the Ratliff boys. The actual robbery, they say, went off without a hitch. The only problem was, the boys not only celebrated with booze and gambling, they were not shy about telling anyone who would listen about their escapade. It didn't take long for the news to spread right back around to the very people who just happened to be looking for them. It was the younger of the two, Marshall, who was just 21 at the time, got 18 years in the penitentiary for his part in the robbery of the bank in Valera, Texas. It happened midday, and they absconded with more than $9,000. His brother, Lee, three years older, would get a similar sentence. The neighboring town of Cisco's police chief, G.E. Bedford, was responsible for the arrest of the brothers. According to a popular newspaper man, Boyce House, Bedford was, quote, a giant man and a veteran officer, end quote. He advocated for their conviction and supported their sentence. Maybe he noticed a characteristic in these boys that suggested that they were not able to be rehabilitated. So how on earth did the brothers end up serving less than a year before they were out on parole? Enter Rilla. She operated the Manhattan Cafe in Cisco. Her real name is Nancy Jarilla Carter, and she was the mother of Lee and Marshall Ratliff. She quickly asked the patrons, who all knew the boys, to sign a petition for the governor to beg for her son's early release. Luckily, the governor of Texas at the time was none other than Miriam Ma Ferguson. She was only the second female governor in Texas history, but perhaps, as history would show, she was the most benevolent as well. She was in the habit of pardoning an average of 100 criminals every month. The Ratliff boys were taken off the naughty list that year. Side note, by the end of her second term, Miriam Ferguson would end up granting almost 4,000 pardons, a record, from what I understand, that remains unbroken, not only in Texas, but across the nation. Well, Bedford was right. 
Both brothers were released on parole, and then both brothers jumped right back in where they left off. Marshall Ratliff was 21 when he was released from the Texas Penitentiary. He was one of five children, Lee being his only brother. The father, Leroy, would end up abandoning his family. In 1921, Marshall married Maddie Bell, and they went on to have two sons. But when he got out of prison, his wife was finished. Apparently, only the governor of Texas was giving out second chances. The Texas Penitentiary was located in Huntsville, a good 300 miles away from Ratliff's home. Luckily, the brothers were making friends fast behind bars and fell into the company of two others who happened to be paroled that same day, Henry Helms and Robert Hill. They were free once again and promised to make good. But that was not as easy as they'd hoped. Giving the criminals the benefit of the doubt, they would say that being ex-cons, it was hard for them to find legitimate work. So the thought of the criminal life was always tugging at them. Henry Helms was by far the most angry of the group. The landlord where the Ratliff boys and Robert Hill would stay would say that Helms had a nasty habit of shooting at people's feet just to watch them jump. The landlord, Francis Heron, would later say, quote, When he talked, everybody listened. When Helms ordered anybody to do anything, they obeyed right then and there or took the chance of getting their feet shot off, end quote. Mr. Heron wasn't just spreading gossip, he was actually a victim of one of Harry's temper tantrums. Even though Henry was married and had a family, and even though his father, a preacher, continued to pray for him, Henry just couldn't keep his hands clean. He'd been arrested for car theft, bootlegging, robbery, and even dealing drugs. Robert Hill was the baby of the group. He was a product of the system. Orphaned by the time he was ten, he'd never had a real home or a real family and found himself falling into a life of crime, probably with his stints in jail being the only time that he had food in his belly and a roof over his head. It didn't take long with the boys hanging around each other that a plan was hatched. The thought of this plan kept Marshall awake at night. He thought it was perfect. In his own small town of Cisco, Texas, there was a small bank that sat on the corner of the main strip, the First National. At one time, it used to be a retail store and was remodeled into the bank, which meant that it had something that none of the other banks in town had, a back door that led to an alley. So in the front, there was a huge pane of glass to see out to the main street, which is actually named Avenue D. Then it had a side street that ran along the right side, if you were looking at the building. And then in the back, there was an alley that pedestrians as well as cars used for cut-throughs or quick pickups from shops. It was perfect. No sooner than he decided to share his plan with his brother, the only other of the four who realized how genius the plan was, he got pinched for robbery. This is a facepalm moment. The man wasn't even out of jail on pardon, mind you, for less than a year. Less than six months! This should have been Marshall's sign to keep his ideas to himself, but he just couldn't. He decided to share his plan with his two new BFFs. They were going to be rich by Christmas. Hello everyone, it's time for a Bag of Bones sponsor break, and this one highlights Lumi Deodorant. 
But today, we are not talking about their amazing deodorant products. If you didn't know already, Lumi also creates body wash. Makes sense, right? And you'll be happy to know that the same care that goes into the deodorant carries over to the body wash line as well. Lumi's acidified body wash is clinically proven to work three times better than ordinary soap. Lumi has a low pH, making it perfect for sensitive skin, and it eliminates odor in all the places, promoting healthier, softer skin. If you haven't already tried the body wash, consider using the Bag of Bones link in the show notes to give it a try. It has a money-back guarantee and free shipping with any order of $25 or more. Plus, you help support an awesome podcast. Hint, hint. If you know you stink or you take showers regularly, this product is for you. Give it a try today. Click the link in the show notes. The plan laid out by Marshall needed four men. Of course, his brother wouldn't see the light of day anytime soon. The men felt that they had to move quickly to make this happen, so they decided that they would pull talent from the outside. Helms said he had the perfect one. He was a safecracker, and who better to have on a bank heist than a safecracker? Unfortunately, he came down with the flu and had to back out. (laughs) I am totally not making this up. I can totally imagine how that conversation went. Um, guys, my mom won't let me rob your bank with you because I got a fever. You'd think with hardened criminals that it would take more than some sniffles with the chance of bringing home a decade's worth of wages in one go on the line. I have to say, he made the right choice, though. (laughs) At the last minute, and I mean at the last minute, they bring in Lewis Davis. The newspapers would say that he was Helm's cousin, but was actually his brother-in-law. He was 32 years old with no criminal resume. He worked at a glass factory, but when the boys whispered of easy money and all of his problems would be solved, he decided to come on board. One time they promised him, in and out, what could possibly go wrong. I'll tell you what could go wrong. After an entire town signed a petition to get this boy out of jail, how could he possibly do this? Everyone knows him. Everyone will recognize him. But he had to be involved because he was the only one who knew his way in and out of town and the complete layout of the bank. Before anyone could talk him out of the idea, not that anyone was trying to, but I'm just again giving them the benefit of the doubt, Marshall saw his landlady sewing a Santa suit for her husband. You can literally see the light bulb over his little cartoon head going off, can't you? No one would suspect Santa. It would hide his face, his hair, his clothes. It would be perfect. Just as a precaution, the boys asked Mrs. Heron, the landlady, to go to the store and pick up iodine, bandages, and some canned food. They also requested that, if they didn't return, to please send the doctor named J.T. Vick to Lewis Davis's sister's ranch. She would recall the boys showing up in a fancy car on December 22, 1927. It was a Buick sedan with all the bells and whistles. They mentioned to Mrs. Heron that they were going on a road trip, and she knew better than to ask any questions. They did, however, by hook or by crook, 
managed to leave with the Santa hat, coat, and beard. Santa Claus is coming to town. On the afternoon of the 23rd, the four men made it into the bustling town of Cisco. They drove around the main square and Marshall directed them by the bank and around the block while he laid low in the back seat. They drove back out of town and dropped Marshall off, then returned to the alley beside the bank to wait. There's good news and then there's bad news. The good news is the clever holiday disguise worked. His own mother wouldn't even recognize him if he walked into her cafe right now. However, everyone, but everyone, knows Santa. And the children let go of their parents' hands to rush to Santa's side for one last chance to tell him their wishes. Author Boyce of the Startling Detective Adventures novella writes, quote, Now this St. Nicholas was different in appearance from most conceptions of the jolly old fellow, for he was remarkably slender, and beneath the long red robe of cheap flimsy material that was edged with cotton, there appeared to be ordinary trousers and shoes, end quote. He waved and smiled and chatted with the children for a while. But when a woman asked which store he worked at, she recalls him saying, quote, You'll find out soon enough, end quote. Santa entered the bank and passed two young girls and their mother on the way out as he was coming in. The room seemed to pause. I mean, Santa just came in the door. The small open room had customers and staff, but it wasn't too busy. It was the lunch hour, and half the tellers were gone, as was the president. He went home for lunch. The bookkeepers, Frida Strobel and Vance Littleton, worked through their lunches, as did Alex Spears, who was the main cashier at the time. Three men came in behind Santa and went to stand at the receipt table on the far left. Joining in the holiday spirit, Alex Spears shouted to jolly old St. Nick, saying, Hello, Santa. He did not respond. He called out again, Hello, Santa Claus. I guess so, you know, he wouldn't get confused with any other Santas that might be around. Santa replied in a mumble, gruff grunt. Little did they know that Santa was suffering from a major hangover after drinking whiskey on the ride there the night before. Not realizing Santa would draw more attention than they wanted, it was now or never. The three men pulled their guns and went to point them at the tellers. Then, traumatizing children far and wide, they say Santa himself pulled out a pistol and yelled at everyone in the small lobby to, quote, grab some sky, end quote. Boyce House, who recounted the robbery in the 1930 issue of Startling Detective magazine, the customers and employees of the bank thought it was a joke when one of the bandits shouted out, Stick em up, everybody. Santa stepped into a teller's booth and pulled out an empty sack from under his coat and began filling it with the money from the till. He also found the teller's gun hidden inside. He took it and tucked it in his waistband. Santa pulled the poor man to the vault and demanded that he opened it, which, to me, sounds easier than having a safecracker with a runny nose, but that's just me. The room is tensely silent. There were no heroes. Things were moving along quickly and quietly, until. From across the street, little Frances Blazingame caught a glimpse of Santa going into the bank, and you know children can be relentless when they want to be. She tugged at her mother's hand until she was allowed movement toward the bank. 
They had just stepped inside when Santa shouted orders for everyone to put their hands up. When she tried to turn around and take her child to safety, the gunman moved to block the front door, and poor little Frances screamed, They're going to shoot Santa Claus! Panicking and thinking of nothing but getting her child to safety, she ignored the threats of the armed robbers and drug her child into the bookkeeping office. There she informed the studious workers that the bank was being robbed. Mrs. Blassingame and her daughter used the very exit the robbers intended to use, ran past the getaway car that was waiting for them, and headed straight for the police department only another block away. Chief of Police, the very same George Emery Bedford, that put the Ratliff boys in prison less than a year ago, was a 25-year veteran on the job. He came up with a plan post-haste. Deputy George Carmichael and Officer Reedes would approach toward the back entrance. Along the alley, two others would cover the side door from behind the bank, and Bedford, all six feet, two hundred-something pounds of him, was going to cover the front door. Now, I picture him with his hat low on his head, a cigar hanging from his mouth, cocking his shotgun as he's walking down the middle of the street toward the bank. He spotted someone walking to the bank and called out to him, They're robbing the bank, he'd say. Get men and guns and block the street. Well, you don't have to tell a Texan twice to grab a firearm and vigilante up. Before too long, sirens were blaring. Town folk were running in all directions and citizens with guns were ready to take on the bad guys. What happens next sounds like it came right out of one of those dime store novels, but it is straight out of history. The hardware store was handing out guns and ammo to anyone who came in and grabbed one. Within minutes, the streets were lined with armed citizens all on the ready for someone to move in just the wrong way. You could feel the tension in the air. Everyone is waiting for someone to do something. Finger is shaking as it's touching the trigger, sweat beating on the forehead. Chief Bedford switches his cigar to the other side of his mouth with his teeth, and he is cool as a cucumber. A shot is fired, but no one knows where it came from. Someone fires a response from the outside into the bank. Everything freezes in time. No one moves. No one dares to breathe. There are hundreds of people on the ready and yet it is deathly quiet. Inside the bank, it's said that Robert Hill tells his crew he's going to fire shots in the air just to let them know that they are armed, and hopefully they will stay back. Nothing could have been further from the truth. Hello, listeners. We are Katie, Amber, Kylie, and Matt. And we are the hosts of Save Me an Isle Seat, a show that talks about musicals in an understandable and relatable way. If you like musicals or theater in general, or if you're interested in them but don't know where to start, we'd love to help introduce you. Come find us wherever you listen to your podcasts. Or on our website at www.ragtagnetwork.com. And we'll be sure to save you an aisle seat. Before Hill could fire off his third shot into the ceiling, the sound of every kind of firearm ripped through the air, blinding the square with smoke and deafening sound of gunfire went off for a solid 15 to 20 minutes. People dove for cover under tables and behind counters as glass shattered and people screamed. Shots were being fired at the building in every possible direction with no regard for the innocents trapped inside. 
Santa Ratliff grabbed the bookkeeper, Strobel, and using her as a human shield, made his way toward the back door. Despite the hail of gunfire, the car parked in the alley was their only chance for escape. As a tester of sorts, Santa shoved Alex Spears out the back door, and he was immediately struck in the jaw by a wayward bullet. The bandits yelled at him to get up and get in the car, but he crawled as fast as he could to get to the corner and slip around it. Others were being launched out the back door, some getting shot and some just getting lucky because the rain of bullets didn't let up. Henry Helms staked his space at the back door, shooting his guns from one direction and then in the opposite direction, returning fire from both ends of the alley. Lewis Davis, our rookie robber, was the first of the bank robbers to try and escape to the getaway car. His first mistake was to fire the gun he was holding, giving it away that he was one of the bad guys. They aimed right for him, and he was struck in the neck, his side, and both his arms. He struggled to keep his balance and managed to fall into the back seat of the getaway car. Trying to use another innocent as a human shield, they shoved Marion Olson out the back door. He was immediately shot in the thigh. They shoved him in the car, but he cleverly just kept scooting until he went back out the other side and limped his way to safety. Seeing that the gang was making their way to the getaway car, Chief Bedford rounded the corner ready to face off with the devils. He cocked his gun and aimed, but the rifle jammed, making him a standing target. But again, everyone was firing in every direction, and whether it came from friendly fire or one of the bandits, Chief George Bedford was shot once, twice, three, four, five times before the mighty man fell to his knees. At the shock of Bedford falling, Marshall used the opportunity to toss the loot into the back seat. He yelled at two little girls Helms had brought for hostages to get into the car. Emma May Robinson did as she was told, but Laverne Comer tried to run. She would say, quote, Santa jerked me by my wrist into the car, end quote. Robert Hill was the last to emerge through the back door using the other bookkeeper, Vance Littleton, as his human shield. Both made it to the driver's side when Robert jumped in and released his shield. Hill frantically tries to start the car. The engine rolls over and the car squeals off to the end of the alley. It screeched around the corner to the right, heading into the main street. Postal worker Will Coldwell was waiting. He used his revolver to take careful aim at the getaway car. He aimed for the gas tank and the tires. A bullet hit one of the rear tires and caused the speeding car to fishtail uncontrollably. The back door flew open and Emma May almost flew out before Santa was able to catch her and bring her back onto his lap. Twelve people were shot that day in the melee. Side note, if you haven't heard my episode on Jesse James, which is all the way back to episode 40, a similar thing happened at a small corner bank, and it was so disastrous that the James gang dispersed. Robert Hill white-knuckled the steering wheel, trying to keep control of the Buick with a flat tire, while Henry Helms is tossing out roofing nails from the windows to slow down the pursuers. Take that, you filthy coppers! Poor Davis, who never wanted to be a criminal in the first place, is bleeding profusely. He's nearly slumped to the floorboard. The two little girls are probably screaming their heads off, or crying, or both. 
Ratliff is shooting through a bullet hole out the back window. And (laughs) there's one more thing. No one thought to fill up the gas in the getaway car after their long, long 300-mile drive from Wichita Falls the day before. The whiskey they'd remember, the gas, not so much. On the same road, while the getaway car is barreling towards them, the Harris family is making their way into town for a little last-minute Christmas shopping. A young 14-year-old is at the wheel. Woodrow Wilson Harris, better known as Woody, is being monitored by his parents in the back seat, and his grandmother is in the passenger seat. Woody is forced to bring the family's Oldsmobile to a stop, as a blood-soaked Santa is waving a gun in the air, demanding that he pull over. Helms comes to the passenger side and tells the 80-year-old woman to get out. She turns her head away, refusing to acknowledge his vulgar behavior. Unfazed, Helms opens the door and tosses her to the ground. This sets Mrs. Harris into a screaming fit. Helms pointed a gun at her and told her that if she doesn't stop screaming, he would shoot. She said she can't help it, and she tried to hold her breath, but soon she was screaming again. Meanwhile, Santa comes over to the driver's side and points a gun at young Woodrow. He tells him that he's going to have to get out, and to do it quickly. Not, not in so many words. Woodrow puts the car in park, jerks the wheel locking it in place, and then he slips the keys into his pocket. Robert Hill would be the bandit who would help the grandmother up and begin escorting her and the parents to a nearby house where they would be safe from any friendly fire. Woody had no idea what was happening, and when he saw the two girls huddled in the back seat, he panicked and took off running. Well, the police and the vigilante posse was coming up on the bandits now and saw Woody running. They assumed that he was one of the fugitives and started firing at him. Woody would later recall, quote, Everyone from 10 to 60 was out there with a gun. They thought I was a bank robber, end quote. Santa and the others carried the now unconscious Lewis Davis to the Olds and transferred the loot, the girls, and their supplies. They hopped in the car and were ready, anxiety creeping up as the sirens were getting closer. Robert Hill reached for the ignition and only then discovered that the keys were gone. By this time, Woody had launched himself into a shed to escape the bullets coming from down the road. Everyone dove from the car. It was like the red light fire drill, you know, where everyone hurries to change places in a car at the red light. Only here, there were bullets tearing through the sky. No one had a choice. Back to the Buick. The bullets not only starting to reach the area, pinging the outside of the Oldsmobile, One bullet caught Hill's left arm and spun him completely around. Hill turned the keys in the ignition and forced the car to speed away. The police and dozens of cars that were also in pursuit made it to the Harris family car, pausing long enough to find poor Davis was left behind. They also found two pistols, three cartridge belts, and Santa's sack full of money. Over $12,000 in cash, and $150,000 in non-negotiable securities. And when it was returned to the bank, every dollar was accounted for. The next day, the front page splashed, quote, All of the money obtained by the bandits, including the $12,000 in cash and $150,000 in non-negotiable securities, 
was recovered according to a statement made by the bank official. End quote. Side note, the bank, despite the slight disturbance in their day, decided to keep the doors open for business. And, side note to the side note, once they were satisfied that Woodrow was not a criminal, I guess his grandma vouched for him, the Harris family was asked to take Lewis Davis to the hospital. The others continued on the chase. The Buick did its best to keep going, but they knew they were running out of time. And, and gas. Hill got off the main road and turned down a less traveled dirt road. Probably not the best idea for three tires and a rim, but that's what he did. And then, to attempt to confuse the posse even more, he pulled over into the tall bush and drove until the car could go no further. The men grabbed their things. I wonder when they realized that their supplies were a little light. Can you imagine that realization? All that, and they left all the money behind? Well, now the battle was just to stay alive and remain free. They decided to leave the girls behind, but told them to stay low on the floor and don't try to see what they were doing or they would get shot. The three men started running from the vehicle through the bush. Laverne dared to peek after it was quiet and saw that Santa was limping. When the police found the vehicle lodged on the side of the road, they surrounded it, ready to open fire, when suddenly they heard the girls screaming from the inside. And then, you'll never guess what happened. Oh wait, before that. Still, at this point in the robbery and the chase, Santa still had his beard on. He had been grazed by a bullet on his chin, and so the beard was soaked with blood, but it still protected his identity. When, at one point, he complained about the wound on his chin, Laverne attempted to see it by lifting his beard, causing it to fall momentarily, before she was knocked in the head by Helms with the butt of his revolver. She wasn't knocked out, but she was given quite a lump. Anyway, the police were questioning the two traumatized girls when Laverne told them that she knew who Santa was. She told them that her mom just bought the Manhattan Cafe that Santa's mom owned. She recognized his voice at first, and then that brief glance confirmed that he was Mrs. Carter's son. (laughs) What are the chances? Hey everyone, it's Elizabeth Bougeret with Bag of Bones. I just need to interrupt this episode for just a quick second to make a sincere request. I've discovered that the best way to help a podcast to grow is, firstly, by word of mouth. If you are enjoying the Bag of Bones content, be sure to tell your friends about it. And then secondly, is through our reviews. Same concept, you're telling others how much you enjoy listening to the podcast, but you're reaching people that you don't even know. And with every new rating and review, the podcast platforms will then share Bag of Bones with other possible listeners. So again, if you enjoy Bag of Bones content, please share your views with others by leaving a five-star rating and review that will entice others to give us a try. Thank you so much to those who have already done this, and thank you to those who are about to. Okay, okay, my time is up. Back to the show. Thank you! The robbers were on foot now. 
Some reports say that over a thousand men showed up at the Buick, which now became headquarters, and others say over two thousand were part of the bunch. Whatever the actual number, this was now the largest manhunt in the history of Texas. Side note: the energy was extra high because there was at that time what was known as a dead bank robber's reward that was worth five thousand dollars to the victor. Apparently, having so many raving lunatics with guns and no leader, the search went slow and was said to be very unorganized. The would-be leader, G.E. Bedford, and his deputy Carmichael were now lying in the hospital, fighting for their lives. They may have started in a grid-type formation, but before too long, if anyone found something of interest, the rest would all come rushing over to look at it, and then, of course, there had to be a discussion about it. Before the bloodhounds arrived, they had already found Santa's beard, a bullet-ridden jacket, a suitcase of first-aid supplies, and those cans of food that they said that they had to have. Robert Hill's overcoat showing the single bullet wound to the arm, and then some other blood-soaked cotton items. And then, (laughs) guess what happened? (laughs) I mean... I can't even write this good of a story. And yes, it really did happen just like this. So, in Cisco, Texas, during the day, it's actually pretty warm. But by the time the sun went down, the temperatures plummeted. A cold front pushed in and covered the area with sleet. This brought the vigilante party to a screeching halt. Most left and went back home, leaving the police officers and a few diehards to continue the manhunt. Meanwhile, back in Cisco, peace officers were trying frantically to keep the chief and deputy alive and all the while question Lewis Davis, who would fade in and out of consciousness. Chief Bedford insisted he was shot by a blonde-headed woman. He'd say, quote, I was looking her straight in the eyes when she fired, end quote. No one could flesh out a woman firing a gun, much less a blonde, Nothing could become of it as George E. Bedford, beloved police chief, died. December 24, 1927, the Fort Worth Star-Telegram reports, quote, G. E. Bedford, chief of police of Cisco, died in a hospital here at 7.45 o'clock tonight of gunshot wounds received in a battle with bandits who robbed the First National Bank here early Friday afternoon, end quote. Deputy Carmichael had slipped into a coma due to the bullet that went straight into his brain. Also from the Star-Telegram, quote, George Carmichael, police officer, is reported dying as a result of wounds received in the engagement, end quote. The death of a police officer is not something to be taken lightly, but the death of a man who has been a part of their community for over 20 years? For his safety... Lewis Davis was moved to a secret location. The Star-Telegram would announce this, saying, L.E. Davis, 33, one of the bandits wounded and who was captured, was taken tonight from the hospital and taken out of the city to avoid mob violence. Two of the four bandits who made their escape in an automobile are believed to have been wounded in their escape. Davis, who was shot before he reached the getaway automobile, was left behind by his comrades and taken to the hospital. End quote. The Star Telegram continues Late reports from the posse of more than 3,000 men who are pursuing bandits 
believe bandits are surrounded on the farm of County Commissioner Bert Bretain in the Leon River Bottoms. Calls have been sent into Cisco for additional men, and a party of 25 heavily armed were dispatched to the scene. End quote. As far as Davis's questioning was concerned, he never gave up his co conspirators. He would give them names, but after police investigated, they ended up being real people, all right. They were all wealthy, prominent citizens of Wichita Falls. Much to the dismay of the posse and the newspaper, the men were not surrounded and were still fighting to escape. Freezing and hungry, the men turned back in the direction they had just come. Yes, Cisco. Yeah, they did it on purpose. Ratliff knew that he would be recognized, so he waited in the wooded area while Hill and Helms snuck around the Cisco neighborhood looking for a car they could steal. They found a Model T Ford that was only one block away from the bank they had just robbed that afternoon. They picked up Ratliff and headed west. When they could drive no more, weak and exhausted, they pulled over to sleep through the day. On the evening of the 24th, they made it to Louis Davis's sister-in-law's house. She let them come in and gave them some food and coffee that was left over from her family's Christmas Eve feast. She tended to their wounds, although Ratliff refused to have the bullet removed from his leg. The next morning, Christmas Day, Minnie Fox, Lewis's sister-in-law, drove into Cisco to see him, but unfortunately, he had already been moved, and he passed away soon after. Meanwhile, at the Fox home, remember back when the boys were getting ready to go on their adventure, all filled with big dreams of riches and the good life? They had asked the landlady to send a doctor if they didn't make it back. Well, she did. And she decided that she needed to accompany the doctor and this other woman, who he claimed was his assistant, and then she was his housekeeper, but she eventually became his wife. So, that's that's not weird. But anyway, Mrs. Heron, Dr. J.T. Vick, and a Ms. Essie Thornton drove from Wichita Falls to the Fox's home. When they arrive, which, as it happens, was only hours after the wounded bandits left, they are immediately arrested by police. Following Davis's funeral, the police round up and arrest five more people. Minnie Fox, of course, and she was very upfront with the officers. She answered all of their questions and told them that she fed them and bandaged their wounds because it was the right thing to do. But she also scolded them for their actions and told them she did not approve. But she also didn't want to see them suffer. Everyone was questioned and released with the exception of Mrs. Josephine Heron. She was brought in for questioning and apparently had a lot to say. She never said she was in on the robbery, but hinted that the boys may have been involved in other robberies in the area. And following a tip, police search the yard of Mr. and Mrs. Heron and discover a fruit jar filled with thousands of dollars worth of Liberty Bonds. She said she had never seen them before. And if she was just the landlady, why on earth would she accompany the doctor to the fox's house? And, food for thought, she's a blonde. She also could not explain her whereabouts the day of the robbery. Delusions of a dying man of the law, or was there another shooter in the grassy knoll? 
I'll leave that for you to sleep on. On Christmas Day, the boys hid away again to get caught up on their sleep, having no idea how lucky they were, if you want to call all that luck. It was only a few hours earlier they were in possession of a vast wealth, and that the belief of all their troubles would soon be over, and now they were huddled in a drafty Model T trying to stay warm enough to get a few hours of sleep before they hit the road again. Robert Hill's gunshot wound in his arm was getting worse. Now infected and swollen, it became too difficult for him to drive, so Helms took over. But while he was sticking to the back road, he hit a cattle guard going way too fast and it launched the car into a ditch. They end up on the ranch of Mr. R.C. Wiley. When they first approached the home, they asked to borrow a car to take their sick friend to the hospital. Mr. Wiley said that they only had one car and no phone, so they'd have to wait until their 21-year-old son Carl came back with their car. The Wiley household hadn't heard anything about the robbery and had no idea who the men might be coming up to his house at midnight, but he let them wait. Eventually, Carl did come home with the car, and the three men pulled their guns on the boy and climbed into his car and told him to drive off. Mr. Wiley reached for his gun, and as the car was driving off, he fired a shot, and (laughs) he shot his own son. Luckily, it didn't kill him. So here he is, trapped in a car with three guns pointed at him at any given time. He is just told to drive and stay on the back roads. It's the middle of the night. It's dark. It's cold. He'd just been shot by his father. They had nothing to eat but two oranges. Oh, Carl got none, and they even stole his coat. A little after 24 hours of twisting and turning down the back roads, they see a town up ahead. They told Carl to pull over while one of the men found and stole a 1924 Model T Ford Roadster. The men discussed it amongst themselves and decided not to kill Carl. Carl would say later that they warned him, quote, We could take you out and tie you and gag you or kill you but we're letting you off light, end quote. <laughs> and with a handshake and a wish for luck, the men departed. And then guess what happened? So the sun was just starting to come up over the horizon. And as Carl drove into town, he had discovered that he had accidentally found his way back to Cisco. So on December 27th, four days after the robbery, the thieves just couldn't seem to make their escape. Carl, of course, drove straight to the Cisco Police Department to give him his statement. I can't even imagine what the robbers thought when they figured out where they were. And side note, a Model T Ford Roadster only has one seat, and most don't have tops. So you can imagine how uncomfortable that would have been for three grown men who are wounded, hungry, and tired and probably quite irritable at this point. But not missing a beat, they hightail it back out of the city that keeps pulling them back. Only now, there's a roadblock. This robbery and the death of Bedford have made these guys enemy number one, two, and three. The press had announced that the posse had built back up into the thousands again, and got the attention of legendary Texas Ranger Captain Tom Hickman, who made his way to Cisco to help out. Only 
Fifty miles away, the roadster comes upon a roadblock created just for them. They almost drive straight into it before realizing what it was. About a block or two away, they hit the brakes and do a 180 away from the wall of cop cars. This, of course, launched another round of open fire. Some even had high-powered machine guns. This time, as they attempted escape, the onslaught of bullets not only flattened a tire, but blew one completely right off the car. Helms, who was trying to keep the car from flipping, was forced to slow down, to which the bandits abandoned the vehicle. Santa Ratliff was already in a bad, bad way. His leg wound was infected, and he was fevered, but he tried to run away. Deputy Silas Bradford pulled out his shotgun, aimed, and fired. Three shots, one for each. The buckshot managed to spray hitting all three, but it took Marshall down. The other two kept running. Just on Marshall's person alone, he was carrying three ammo belts, six handguns, a double-barreled shotgun, and a bowie knife for all the good it did him. He also had six bullet wounds. They weren't sure he was going to make it. At this point, I'm not even sure they cared. One more down, two to go. Texas Ranger Tom Hickman took point on the posse, ready to get this case wrapped up. It didn't take long for the posse to pick up the final two. The Star-Telegram would report, quote, Cisco, December 28th. Two men driving at a fast rate and answering to the description of Henry Helms and his companion, two remaining men at large who participated in the robbery of the First National Bank at Cisco, December 23rd, are reported to have broken through the cordon of police officers southeast of Grayford late tonight and to have passed through Cato and Breckenridge headed west, end quote. They were starving and bleeding and yet managed to avoid detection for another two days. Finally, desperate for food and shelter, the two managed to make it into the town of Graham, where they stole some ears of corn and hid in a barn for the night. The next morning, they wandered into the Texan Hotel. Helms couldn't put words together, and the front desk clerk saw one of them was still wearing a cartridge belt. I guess because their bloody clothes and fevered faces wasn't reason enough, he called the sheriff's department. The bandits left the hotel, and it wasn't long before they were discovered. They were all but done in. It was said that Helms was near death and gave up without a fight. Hill, on the other hand, took his last burst of energy and made a run for it. He'd say later, quote, I figured we were going to be killed anyhow on account of the bank reward, and I figured it was just as well to get killed running as with our hands up, end quote. December 31st, 1927, from the Dallas Morning News. Graham, Texas. Remaining two Cisco bandits easily taken. Men surrender without a struggle. Robbers weak from hunger, wounds, and lack of sleep. Henry Helms and Robert Hill, alias Robert Ketcher, two of the gang who robbed the First National Bank a week ago were captured early Friday morning on the streets of Graham and taken to Eastland County Jail. The Austin American Statesman on December 30, 1927 would read, quote, Wounded and hungry, pair run down at Graham, Texas. End quote. The Santa Gang was officially behind bars. Now to get them healthy enough to stand trial. And 
Let's not forget, both Chief Bedford and Deputy Carmichael had died, adding murder to their robbery charges. The iron bars may have slammed shut, and Texas thought for sure that they were finished with the Santa Claus shenanigans. Oh, but they were so, so very wrong. However, for the rest, you're going to have to wait till the next episode. And if you're only going to take what you've heard so far as proof that truth is stranger than fiction, you are not going to want to miss out on the next episode. Okay, on another side note, we are only three episodes away from our 100th episode. I am so excited. Would I have rather reached it last season? Yes, and there was a brief moment I didn't think we were going to get there at all. But here we are anyway. We made it, you and I, and I am glowing. Well, I mean, in a few more episodes anyway. I have been racking my brain trying to decide on what spectacular things we should be doing around here since the 100th episode in Podcast Speak is kind of a big deal. A whopping 80% of podcasts don't ever reach this beautiful round number, and I am so happy (laughs) to be this close. I love this podcast so much, and I love that you have jumped in along with me. Because of you sharing the podcast itself and all of the Facebook and Instagram posts, our numbers continue to grow. I am so grateful to you. Thank you most sincerely. So, the big 100 is going to have to be something, um, big, I guess. For right now, I'm Elizabeth Bougeret, and I'll meet you here next week, bringing us that much closer. Bag of Bones is created and hosted by Elizabeth Bougeret, produced by the Ragtag Network and History Revisited, music by Johnny Reed. To learn more about the show, visit elizabethbougeret.com. For more podcasts from the Ragtag Network, visit their website at www.ragtagnetwork.com. Copyrights by Elizabeth Bougeret and DCT Enterprises.